With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Decoding the Unknown. This one's all about what happened to Michael Rockefeller. I have a vague inclination. I know. I, in fact, I might have suggested this video to Katie. I suggest these so far in advance and just come up with random ideas. I'm not sure. If I, if I didn't, Katie, I'm sorry for taking the credit there. Isn't Michael Rockefeller, as in the Rockefeller family. And I feel like at some point he went off to do some like missionary work or something with the Peace Corps. And then he ended up getting eaten or something. Am I imagining that? I feel like that's the crazy story here. Uh, if you're new to the show, welcome, welcome. Uh, this is a uh, podcast where and a, and a YouTube show. Hello, YouTube folk. Uh, where I will get a script. This one written by Katie. As I mentioned, it's about Michael Rockefeller. I'm going to read it. Let's get on with it. A rich white kid. Well, there we go. Now we know it's Rockefeller, Michael Rockefeller. A remote tribe. Years of simmering colonial tensions. What could possibly go wrong? That's the question we're looking into today as we explore the unknown fate of Michael Rockefeller after we are missing in what is now Western New Guinea in November 1961. No trace of him was ever found. Some say he drowned. Some say he intentionally turned his back on his privileged upbringing. And some say that he was killed and eaten by cannibals. Let's decode. Yeah, that's the last one I've definitely heard of, um, that he was eaten. I get the feeling this is one of those ones where there's just not going to be a ton of evidence either way, because in that introduction, it's like there are three theories, and the eaten by cannibal ones is going to be really hard to prove, because they've never found him again, unless they find like his chewed on bones that they DNA test. Well, I don't know, it just doesn't seem very likely that we'll ever get an answer. Who was Michael Rockefeller? Hang on, do you mean Rockefeller like the extremely rich Rockefellers? Well, I, yes, I do. Even if you don't know anything about the family, you'll have heard the name. Rockefeller Center is one of the most well-known landmarks in New York City, where they put a giant Christmas tree every year. The TV show 30 Rock is so called because it's set in 30 Rockefeller Plaza. I don't know, I've not seen that TV show. I assumed, I thought it had something to do with them being the age of 30. But that's what happens when you talk about a TV show that you've never seen. Isn't it, Simon? Where Saturday Night Live, MSNBC shows like The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon are all currently filmed, John D. Rockefeller was the world's first billionaire due to his monopoly on the US oil industry in the, in the 1870s and 1880s. It's a name that's synonymous with huge wealth, and while Big Daddy John D. did give most of his wealth away, his descendants are still filthy rich by any standard, of course, automatically in positions of influence and power. That's just such a crazy thing. He was he made his money in the 1870s. It's like 150 years ago. He gave most of it away to charity, and still, what was this, 1960s? Uh, I assume the Rockefellers are still rich today. Even 150 years later, they're still rich off that, which is mad. Michael Rockefeller was born in 1938 as the great-grandson of John D. Rockefeller. Michael's father was Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York at the time this story unfolds. He later went on to become vice president of the United States for three years under Gerald Ford. Nelson was big into art, which is an easy hobby to have if you're wealthy. <laughs> it's like a default rich person activity, isn't it? Like yachting. <laughs> 
<laughs> what do you do? Yachts, golf, and uh, collecting art. Somebody's rich. <laughs> and in 1957, he hosted an event for the public, opening his latest venture, the Museum of Primitive Art. The exhibits included things like carved paddles from Easter Islands and Mindstone figures. <laughs> I know. Katie's about to comment on the word primitive being used. I know the word primitive smacks of condescension and has noble savage vibes, but these artifacts were displayed as works of art, bringing unfamiliar but no less impressive items to Western audiences. It was also the 1950s, and I don't want to say that they were right in using that word, but it was the past. We all know it's the worst. There was tons of other horrible shit going on in the 1950s that we'd be like, like calling people primitive. I, don't get me wrong, it's obviously bad. But in 1950s America, weren't black people still having to use a different toilet? Which is insane. <laughs> just, there, were, there were plenty of problems. Young Michael Rockefeller fell in love with the concept of exploring little-known cultures and bringing examples of their art back to the States. An intelligent fellow, he graduated from Harvard with a degree in history and economics and was a seasoned traveler, having been to Japan, and he also worked for a summer in Venezuela, albeit on the Rockefeller family ranch. Oh my god, they just have a random ranch in Venezuela. <laughs> it's another rich person shit, isn't it? While he was predominantly expected to join the family firm, Michael seemed to be more of a free spirit, and in 1961 he went to work on a documentary that was released a couple of years later under the title Dead Birds. It's currently a respectable 7.1 on IMDb, and Michael Rockefeller is credited as the sound recordist. In this documentary, the crew, I have to say, I was like, I had to reread that. I was like, wait. He's just the sound recordist, and it's like, yeah, he went to get a regular. I was like, he's super rich, isn't he? Just like paying people to make a documentary. Like, isn't that what rich people do? And he's like, no, he just he went to get a job on this uh, movie, which is cool. Respect. In this documentary, the crew filmed the Danny tribe of West Papua, and Rockefeller took a detour during filming to visit another tribe called the Azmat. Following his experience with the people, the landscape, and their artwork, he determined to run a proper expedition later in 1961 to learn more about the Azmat and hopefully accrue some more pieces for his father's Museum of Primitive Art. It was on this trip that Michael Rockefeller vanished never to be seen or heard from again. Thanks to being a Rockefeller, Michael was already on the board of directors for his dad's museum, which if you don't count the nepotism, was a pretty impressive feat by the age of 23. <laughs> yeah, that's like saying, wow, it's really impressive you're king by the age of eight. And it's like the, literally the only reason is because you were born into a certain family and then your dad died when you were young. That's it. It's not impressive in any way. While I graduated from university by that age, I wasn't on the board of anything, although I'd actually got married, which is a pretty big life achievement. Also, I made it past the age of 20 which doesn't seem to be the case for Hall Michael, so he's the real success story here. Well, he's not a success story. I mean, I don't think people who are born into wealth and then do, like, he hasn't done anything on his own. He just got born into money, and then the only job we've so far known that he actually got as, you know, a real job, not being the on the board of his dad mu dad's museum, that doesn't count, is he was a sound recordist on a documentary, and he went to Harvard, which is impressive, but plenty of people do that all the time. So I don't think he's really had that many life achievements. Probably still him. I disagree, Katie. I totally disagree. I don't think he's done anything particularly impressive, to be honest. Anyway, let's talk about his final expedition and the reasons he went. The Asmat. First, a bit of a background on the Asmat people. They live in the western half of New Guinea, which is known as West Papua and Indonesian New Guinea. Okay. It was formerly known as Netherlands or Dutch New Guinea, which might give you a clue as to where the colonial tensions came into play. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it, the Asmat people live in an area of just under 10,000 square miles or around 25,000 square kilometers on the coast of the Arafura Sea. I'm terrible at imagining sizes. Like, I 10,000 square miles 
to me could literally be the size someone could tell me that's the size of the uk and i'll be like okay someone could tell me it was the size of ireland and i'll be like okay i i mean i don't know let's see how wildly wrong i am how big is the uk in square miles why why when i search how big is the uk in square miles is the top answer the uk is 242,000 square kilometers why would you do that to me what's going on google you're supposed to be better than this okay it's a hundred thousand square miles basically so i was um i was wrong by a factor of 10. so there we go they lived in an area about a tenth of the size of the uk you're welcome on the coast of the arafura sea their territory contains mangrove swamps mountains rivers and thick forests with their dwellings generally built at least two meters off the ground at the time of rockefeller's disappearance the azmat hadn't had all that much contact with the rest of the world in the past they were occasionally sighted by explorers including captain james cook but they always managed to get shot of the pesky visitors before any exploration could be done probably not a sign that they want visitors then it's like if you went up to someone's house rang on the front door and they shot a shotgun through the door and just missed you you'd be like probably not super welcoming and then some rich guys like i'm gonna go knock on that door i guess they gave you money but not brains in america i feel like you could just wasn't there something where it's like legacy admissions i was reading about this and it blew my mind that if your dad or mum went to like one of these big universities they take that into account in your admission and i'm like holy shit. That's like mega nepotism. Nepotistic? For historically convoluted reasons that I wasted too much time looking up, the Dutch had laid claim to the western half of the islands of New Guinea in 1828, but didn't really do anything with it until the early 20th century. This might have something to do with the cultural practices of the Asmat themselves. According to writer Carl Hoffman, who will crop up again later, the Asmats literally lived in their own world, separated from other influences, and were huge believers in spirits. Is it bad that when I read influences, I'm like, influencers. And I'm like, wait, what's influencers? Oh, you spent too much time on the internet, Simon. Everything had a spirit inside it. The trees, the water, every part of a person. Yeah, I often think that. It's like, I've got a penis spirit. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know why I said that. I just, when there's a spirit in part of every part of your body, it's just immediately what comes to mind, isn't it? That's the spirit! They were, and are, a people fighting a constant battle between life and death, trying to trick and placate the spirits in equal measure. If anyone died for any reason, even sickness, their spirit had to be avenged or appeased by a series of rituals which sometimes included the hunting, killing, and yes, cannibalizing of another person. Sounds like these guys are really busy. It's a pointless. I think, you know, with religion, it's like you've got to spend an hour on week in church. Oh my god, you're wasting time just doing pointless sh and then this is like oh my god he died of the flu we've got to perform all these days-long rituals no wonder nothing ever gets done i mean i don't know if anything gets done maybe they get a lot done i don't know why I, maybe just seems unlikely with all this spirit worship in some other rituals they drank each other's pee and men had sex with other men so you can see why catholic missionaries were either to stick their beaks in in the 1950s yeah that's the problem with the world <laughs> the african tribe <laughs> with men having sex with men that's the problem catholic church you go fix that nothing going on in the catholic church that needs fixing nothing at all it's completely perfect especially when it comes to men having sex with other men right catholic church right mm -hmm. also central to part of the culture is what's known as the bis or bizch pole 
I think it's pronounced Bish or Beige. Okay. <laughs> Artistically inspired. Just taking a guess there. I think. Yeah, well, I think it's pronounced Bies. I don't know. Maybe Katie looked it up. She probably did. Artistically and spiritually important, these poles are carved out of a single piece of mangrove tree and can be over 20 feet or 6 meters long. Or high, I guess. They are used in Azimut rituals as tributes for deceased tribe members and to close the circle of life and death. The deceased's name, sorry, and maybe diseased, is carved into the pole to keep the memory of them alive. Usually pretty phallic looking the poles are intricately carved and depict men stacked on top of each other phallic looking they got that penis spirit in them animals and other things like canoes what oh they're carved on there okay a top is another carving sprouting out of a man's groin area oh my which can kind of look like a delicate wing but also well a big old you know what penis these poles are intrinsically linked with asmat life to quote Carl Hoffman in a piece for the Smithsonian Magazine, The completion of a beach pole usually unleashed a new round of raids. Revenge was taken and balance restored. New heads obtained. New seeds to nourish the growth of boys into men and the blood of the victims rubbed into the pole. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, that wasn't a quote from, uh, what was his face? Old Hoffman here. That was me commenting. The quote continues. The spirit of the pole was made complete. The villagers then engaged in sex and the poles were left to rot in the Sargo fields, fertilizing the Sargo and completing the cycle. Michael Rockefeller. He just... Gotta go check this out. Within the Asma territory of the 50s and 60s, there were several different villages, each rivals, but connected by marriage, each village was led by a head man, and they were seemingly not averse to shedding blood. In 1957, five men from the village... Oh my lord, that is a... That is a... Otsyanep, maybe, were killed by the rival village of Omadasep. In retaliation, the warriors of Amadasep went on the offensive, with over a hundred people dying in the ensuing clash. When word of this violence got back to the Dutch government controller of the region, Max Lepre set out to shut down this nonsense. <laughs> the Dutch governor, uh huh, he's gonna go fix all these tribal problems. That sounds like something he's absolutely capable of. He headed to Amadasep in 1958 and basically trashed the place, setting fire to a communal building and canoes and confiscating weapons. Yeah, that's the way to get everyone to agree. How are we gonna get peace in the Middle East? Just blow it all up. Oh my god. What is wrong? What is wrong with this guy? And he confiscated weapons. The policeman he sent to the other village of Otsjanep did not fare so well with the villagers. They rejected the Dutch flag and threatened the police with violence. Good. Finally, in February 1958, Lepra with some police headed to Otsjanep to tell them to quit it on the whole headhunting and cannibalism thing. Unfortunately, due to feeling threatened and totally out of his element, Lepra and the police ended up firing guns at the Asmat, leaving five people dead and the entire population in a state of flux about what was happening. And it wasn't just five people dead. Four of them were the most important men in the village, which totaled over a thousand people at the time. This was an unprecedented event. How could the Asmat appease these spirits when it was a total outsider, a foreigner? A white man who had committed the murders. So it was into this still shock society that lived in perpetually vivid cycles of life, sex, and death that young Michael Rockefeller ventured in 1961. What are you up to, Mike? No, Michael. Michael Rockefeller's last voyage. <laughs> With that setup, the only thing about it's just this is not surprising in any way. For his trip to acquire it, Dick couldn't he have at least phoned the Netherlands and be like, Oh, hello there, I'm Michael Rockefeller, jolly good, pip pip. Uh, I don't know why he's posh British, but I don't know how posh American people speak. And he's like, yo, how's it going down there? You guys all right? Safe to visit? And they'll be like, good lord, no, we just shot them with guns and they're pissed. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot 
for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For his trip to acquire a brand new collection of art for his father's museum, Michael, just do it like other rich people. Just go to Sotheby's and bid on the art. Let someone else go down there and get it. Your granddad, your great-grandpappy would be like, Michael, what are you doing? Why do you think I earned all this money? It's so other people can go collect the art from the dangerous people. What are you doing, Mike? The Rockefeller traveled with Rene Wassing, an anthropologist familiar with the Azmat people, and also two local Azmat teens. Wassing, it doesn't seem like you knew them well enough, does it? Over the course of a few weeks, Michael bartered and traded for local wares such as bowls and decorated shields, but it was the Bish bowls which he was really after. He managed to get some on his initial visit to the Azmat earlier in the year and wanted to get as many as he could. After <laughs> Michael Rockefeller's. Him and the British Museum could be friends. After having restocked their supplies this morning, I saw someone, there was a great meme on Twitter, someone got blocked by the British Museum because they posted a picture of like them opening a backpack. You know one of those, you know when you do one of those photos where it's you like in the salt plains and you've got like the people in the palm of your hands because of the perspective difference and it's these two kids and they got like a backpack and they've got it open and in the background the tower of pisa it looks like they're shoving the tower of pisa into a backpack and they're like hey british museum look what we found and it's the, the next tweet is you've been blocked by the british museum and i'm like yeah but it's true british museum and what's that other great joke the only reason the pyramids aren't in the british museum is because they wouldn't fit <laughs> What are you up to? I did a video on my other channel called Mega Projects. It was that British Museum, <laughs> a collection of other people's stuff. Oh my god. Okay, sorry. Let's get it together. We're doing a video about Michael Rockefeller doing his own little British Museum adventure. I'm going to get blocked by the British Museum. I'm no, it's an amazing museum. I'm no longer going to be welcome back. But it is other people's stuff, isn't it? After having restocked their supplies, the small party set out again in their catamaran on November the 17th, 1961. It was while they were trying to cross the mouth of a wide river that winds and cross currents swamped their boat's motor and then tipped the catamaran over. Rockefeller and Wassing stayed with the boat as the Asmat teenagers went back for help. The shore was visible, but it was several miles away. Rockefeller and Wassing spent all all night and the next day clinging to the overturned catamaran waiting for rescue but rockefeller was worried that they'd be carried further out to sea on the morning of the 19th he stripped to his underwear tied a couple of empty jerry cans around his waist as makeshift floats and then struck out for the distant shore his last known words were i think i can make it Wassing was spotted from a plane or helicopter later that day and was picked up the following morning michael rockefeller was never seen again wait who was flying the helicopter? Because that's on Michael Rockefeller's dime. Or Rockefeller family dime. The helicopter comes out. It's like, okay, okay, we see him. Go down and get him. And then they're picking Wasser up. And there's clearly one seat on the helicopter. I'm making this up, obviously. And uh, there's clearly just one seat on the helicopter. It flies down. And they're like, Michael, thank God we got you. And Wasser just looks around. And they're like, yeah, thank God. <laughs> Let's get back to New York. And they get back and it's like, this isn't Michael Rockefeller, you dick. Oh, Wassa, legend. The asthma teenagers made it back to shore and trudged for miles through the mud to raise the alarm, which is why it took so long for any rescue attempt to get started. Michael's father, Nelson, and his twin sister, Mary, flew west to New Guinea with a plane load of reporters, generating headlines such as Governor's son missing off the coast of New Guinea. And later, as no trace was found and hope was dwindling, Jungle Hunt lost hope for Rockefeller's son. Eventually, his family flew back to New York on the 28th of November, and two weeks later, the search was officially called off 
Michael Rockefeller was legally declared dead in 1964, with the cause of death given as drowning. What, you just had a guess? <laughs> Seems like, can't you just be like, he's dead because he hasn't come out of the jungle and it's been years? We don't know why, we're just assuming, or do you really have to have something for the death certificate? I feel like a short explanation. Went to the jungle, tried to get some big poles or some shit like that. Never seen again. Probably dead. Perhaps eaten. Stop. <laughs> Seems an open to shut case, right? Well, heck no. Rumors have long swirled that the junior Rockefeller met a far more grisly death at the hands of the very people he was so enamored with, and Karl Hoffman all but proved it in the research for his 2014 book, Savage Harvest. Whoa! All but proved it. Okay, shit. I was saying at the beginning, there's no way. Like, how are you possibly going to prove this unless you've got his chewed upon bones? Is it okay to talk about him like this? If this was a much more recent thing, I'd be more sensitive. But this was like 50 years ago. He didn't have any kids. Anyone who really knew him is probably, probably dead, right? I mean, it could be like someone's uncle, but they couldn't have known him very well. They'd be like young. I think it's okay. I think I'm not making fun of him. I mean, I am a little bit because he, it does seem like a bit of an idiotic thing to do. I'm not apologizing. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. But we'll come unless unless I get cancelled, then I'll have to make an apology video. I mean, I won't have to, but I probably won't. Okay. Why am I on so many? I'm apologize. I don't know why I'm on so many tangents. It's like quarter to eight on a Monday morning. You know, normally I'd be tired, but I'm feeling good. Kid got up at five this morning, which was brilliant. <laughs> Thanks. I feel good. But we'll come to that in a moment. Let's just discount the other theories first before putting all of our weight behind this one. The theories. He drowned. First things first. Rockefeller's official cause of death was given as drowning. This seems a reasonable assumption. He was probably quite tired. It was several miles to shore. He may have swum into the same cross currents that upset the boat, etc. Except he was in good shape and he was uninjured. He had some flotation devices, those empty containers for buoyancy. People smarter than I have already worked out that when he left the boat at around 8am, his journey would have coincided with the tide coming in. This is incredible research. I mean, is it? Is it? I'm like, sometimes I think I'm really dim because I'm like, wow, they found out when the tide came in in 1964. And it's, yeah, probably because the same fucking tide is working the same way today. It's not that complicated. His journey would have coincided with the tide coming in, therefore helping him towards shore. Also, there was by now a fevered search effort going on. Helicopters, planes, and ships were scouring the waters with locals and police searching the swamps and coastline. If he had drowned or perished in the water but still had the floating cans on him, chances are he would have been spotted. So did something else get to him first? He was eaten by a shark or a crocodile. A shark? In like a river? Do sharks live in the sea? They definitely live in the sea. Do they also live in rivers, I guess, is the big question. I don't think so. I've never been in a river. I mean, oh, gotta watch out for those sharky sharks. Could Michael have been intercepted en route to shore by a savage sea creature? There were sharks around, but they were not known for attacking people, so it would have been ridiculous. Well, yes, apparently they are. So it had been a ridiculously unlucky encounter if indeed that's how he met his fate. Wait, was he on a river? I don't know in my- Wait, was he at sea? Somehow in my mind he was on a river this whole time. Oh no, he's probably at sea. He was Oh, Simon, you're so dumb. Just carry on, Jesus. Yeah, and tides probably more affect sea than they- I know they affect rivers, but it's probably less so. Oh my god. Why was I- ima... I just because I guess I'm imagining him in the Amazon, even though he's not in the Amazon. I guess, I don't know. This is because how these adventure movies work. Adventure movies ruined my mind and also provided days of entertainment. So it would have been a ridiculously unlucky encounter if that is even how he met his fate. What? Oh, the shark attack. Okay. And I don't know how much of a body a shark would eat, but it's not going to be absolutely everything, so surely a trace or two would have washed up eventually. <laughs> I don't know what Katie's implying there. The shark would have eaten absolutely everything. 
but people would grind his bones to make their bread. If he was attacked by an animal, the crocodile is far more likely culprit. They were pretty common in the Asmat region and often featured on carvings on the bish poles, showing that if they weren't the cause of death, the Asmat people at least thought of them as worthy opponents. These are the big ones too. The saltwater crocodile is the largest species of croc that has a reputation as a man-eater. They will attack and kill humans, and sometimes also store larger animals they kill so they can come back and feed off the bodies later. Lovely. I guess it's possible that Michael Rockefeller was killed and hidden away by a crocodile, but again, as the search party was already out in force at this point, it seems unlikely that his body could have remained hidden all this time. The Azmat, while still a remote tribe, are more than used to visitors nowadays, so would have no reason to hide the remains of a stranger's body, should one have ever popped up in the last few decades. Unless, that is... They have a secret to hide. Oh, so I feel like they, you know, because that guy proved it. I'm, I'm skeptical about how he could prove it, though. I'm quite interested to see how that's possible. He was killed and eaten by the Asmat. You may have thought at the beginning of this story that I was joking about the cannibals part. Oh, no, I wasn't. I was not. I, would, I don't I did never think that I know there are those cannibal tribes and there was one that got this disease I made a video about this called Kuru which was basically because they always ate the dead they were getting this it's a really crazy disease caused by um prions which are terrifying I made a video about that oh my god I made so many videos but I did a video on into the shadows and a YouTube channel I do about prions and they are this like scary disease and basically you can cap you can get a prion which is a misfolding protein by eating a prion and eating the prions in the brain particularly and it was this thing that was killing them and so this tribe were all dying of this kuru disease because they kept eating each other when they died and why am i telling this story oh yeah the cannibals but if you want to learn more about that i don't know what the video was called check out that prions video on into the shadows it's terrifying well, I wasn't. In fact, as time has passed, this seems to have been the most likely theory of them all. In his book, Savage Harvest, which is a great name for a book, by the way. And also, if anyone's insensitive, <laughs> it sounds like you are, Carl. <laughs> God damn. It's a book about a guy who gets eaten by cannibals. A factual book. What's it called? Savage Harvest. Why? Because the savages, which is also inappropriate, 2014, Carl, and they harvested his flesh. Good lord. Carl, but I mean, it's probably a title that's going to sell books, isn't it? Carl Hoffman went in deep into Asmat territory and learned all kinds of things that seemingly point to this horrible outcome. Did? Oh my. We'll explore his findings. I kind of want to read Savage Harvest. Terrible, dark book i mean not terrible terribly dark it sounds like i want to read it we'll explore his findings but just bear in mind that he is really the only source we have for this story so while it's very compelling there's no way to really fact check him nobody's gone and spent months trying to disprove this theory so let's just take him at his word for now according to hoffman michael did make it to shore after he left the overturned catamaran unfortunately for him however the first group of people he saw was a canoe load of people from the otzianet village if you recall it was this village who had lost five men to governor lepra's gun three years earlier and these men's spirits were still not at rest even though michael rockefeller was actually known to some of the men in the canoe when he reached out one of them stabbed him in the chest he didn't die at once but was taken to a more hidden location where he was killed cannibalized and his bones were later used as spears and daggers the skull was apparently hanging in one of the killer's houses but how did hoffman find this out well for one michael's name was brought up totally out of the blue he'd been hanging out with people in the asmat region for a couple of weeks ostensibly this guy is brave it's like dude you're going there to find out whether they ate someone does that not rig of like well i hope they don't eat me he was ostensibly finding out about their history and culture when he mentioned the shootings of lepra the atmosphere instantly changed and now you're reminding them of this my dude 
Why are you living dangerously, son? The atmosphere instantly changed. Everyone started getting really antsy. When Hoffman asked what he was going on, his guide told him that everyone was afraid because of the American tourist who had died there 50 years before. Even though Hoffman had never mentioned he was really trying to find out about Rockefeller's fate and had never even said his name, his guide confirmed that the villagers were afraid because people from Otsianep had killed him and everyone knows it. In itself, this doesn't really prove anything, so let's go a little deeper. For reasons that don't make much sense to me, the Dutch were sending Catholic priests to convert the Asmat people over the 20th century. Ostensibly, they were trying to get them to lay off the more violent aspects of their lives, such as the headhunting and cannibalism, which I suppose is a good call, but just leave their spiritual beliefs out of it. Why don't you? Anyway, Karl Hoffman managed to track down one of these priests in 2012 for his book, The Priest Hubertus von Bay. Love the name Hubertus, by the way. I've never heard it before. I've heard the name Hubertus. I like it. I mean, I'd never, ever, ever, ever call my kid Hubertus, but uh, I like it. Confirmed to Hoffman that a month after Michael Rockefeller had gone missing, four asthma men came to see him. Eventually, they confirmed that Rockefeller had been in the water, and after some dispute among the group about who had found him, one of the men ended up stabbing him with a spear. Von Pei asked for more information, and they described the weird shorts he was wearing that they weren't familiar with i.e. his underwear. <laughs> For some reason in my mind, I just imagined him wearing like board shorts. You know, they're, they're brightly colored, down to the knees. But obviously that wasn't what he was wearing. They also confirmed that he'd been wearing glasses and that in all, a total of 15 men were now in possession of various bones and other such items like the glasses. When asked why they'd killed Rockefeller, the group explained that they had done it in retaliation for the shooting carried out by Lepra in 1958. Von Pei met up with another priest who was originally supposed to rendezvous with Michael before his disappearance. This man, Cornelius Van Kessel, another outstanding name, had also, again, Cornelius, great name. I'd never call my kid Cornelius. I mean, I'd definitely call him, if someone said you got to call your kid Hubertus or Cornelius, I'd choose Cornelius. But still i wouldn't and i'm sorry to all the hubertuses and corneliuses out there it just feels a bit old and dated doesn't it or maybe i mean these are dutch guys so maybe cornelius is super popular in the netherlands maybe they're all like you know cornelius is like their john it's probably not is it he'd also heard rumors about michael's fate floating around he carried out his own investigation and ended up writing both men's findings to the dutch controller of the asmat region he gave a comprehensive account of what he believed had happened, including the names of the Asmat involved. Hoffman's, Hoffman quotes Van Kessel's report as follows. After my conversation with Father Von Page, the 1% of doubt I had has been taken by the very detailed data which matched my data and inspections. All caps. It is certain that Michael Rockefeller was murdered and eaten by Otz Yarnap. This was revenge for the shooting four years ago. That really is in all caps. <laughs> Just feels unnecessary. You don't need to shout this. This information was duly forwarded to the Dutch Minister of the Interior. Hoffman had an investigator search through the government archives, but only parts of the correspondence was found. It's pretty telling, though. Hoffman quotes this government memo as, In my opinion, some reservations need to be made. No evidence has been found yet, and therefore there is no certainty yet. In this connection, it doesn't seem germane to me to give information to the press or Rockefeller Sr. at this time. So basically, the Dutch government is covering the whole Michael Rockefeller was killed by an eaten by cannibals thing up, but why? Well, it was really to hide the fact that maybe they weren't doing such a great job, quote-unquote, civilizing the Asmat people. Also, it seems like you're kind of responsible for his death, because you went there and shot five of them, and then they killed someone else. 
And it's like, that's probably another reason for the cover-up. This was the Netherlands' last eastern colony, so they wanted to keep up appearances of running a tight ship. Yeah, good job, colonists. Also, it was quite embarrassing that just a couple of weeks after they closed their investigation, people had already started telling a completely different story. If you're wondering why the priests didn't go straight to Michael's family with their findings, they were warned not to, but the story ended up just trickling out anyway, and Nelson Rockefeller got in touch with the Dutch embassy in the US. According to Hoffman's article, Joseph Lunds, the Minister of Foreign Affairs himself, responded. The rumors had been thoroughly investigated, he said, and there was nothing to them. So that was that, as far as everyone in the Dutch government was concerned, right? They apparently tapped Wim van der Waal, which is a pleasing sounding name. This video, do Dutch people just have brilliant names, if lacking the gravitas Hubertus or Cornelius, to carry out another investigation on the lowdown? In an interview with Hoffman in 2002, he also confirmed the story and had even seen remains of a skull that showed the trademark signs of ceremonial brain eating. He passed the remains on to Dutch authorities, but unfortunately, the timing coincided with the Netherlands losing control of West New Guinea to Indonesia, so he was recalled. A report was never filed, and I have no idea what happened to the bones. So this does seem like pretty strong evidence that Michael Rockefeller did indeed meet an unlucky and grim death. Mate, I don't know if we can describe it as unlucky. <laughs> other than like somewhat expected uh, we are relying heavily on carl hoffman's account here but the people especially the priests he interviewed were all credible witnesses with corroborating references popping up in other accounts over the years as far as i'm aware the bones got lost or were possibly left in asthmat they definitely were not dna tested or anything like that which probably wasn't possible in the early 1960s anyway but maybe someone could have snagged the skull since then to do some sort of reconstruction or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stealing the skull from the people who murdered and ate someone. Sounds like a brilliant idea. You're dead. You are dead. Admittedly, I used to watch a lot of CSI. Oh, me too. I've seen so much CSI. Grew up on CSI. But as the Asmata storytellers with strong familial bonds, surely these bones are still hanging in some people's houses to this day. Would it be possible to get anything out of them? I suppose that because all we really have is word-of-mouth confession, the Asmata could just as easily deny it if anyone tried to collect any evidence today. If you're still a bit shaky on why this hasn't been confirmed by the modern-day Asmat people, it all ties in with their beliefs. After having caught fragments of a conversation mentioning Rockefeller, Hoffman had recorded a man basically warning his fellows not to talk about this story. When translated, he was saying things like, Don't you tell this story to any other man or any other village, because this story is only for us. Don't speak. Don't speak and tell the story. I hope you remember it, and you must keep it for us. Also, they value stories. Stories are, like, something they want to keep. And it's there's diminished value in more people learning your story. That's interesting. This is because the Azmat are still very afraid of the repercussions. Oh, wait. Okay. Wait, I kind of took this as they're just like a secret culture who want to have stories for themselves like, and have their own mythology and stuff rather than other tribes knowing it. But I guess also possibly this. In their historical record, the events surrounding Michael Rockefeller include a foreigner shooting the head of one of their villages, a huge operation involving helicopters and things that they'd never seen before, foreign people coming and questioning them, and then a cholera epidemic breaking out, which involved around 70 people dying. No wonder some sort of anger and retaliation from other powers got tied into the story of the disappearance through the years. If the Asmat were responsible, they must have warned future generations never to speak of it again. Yeah, okay. Because if you're like some tribe person living there and you're like, we did this, and then the helicopters come and a cholera outbreak comes, you're like, oh my god, the spirits are angry. The gods are here. And then you're like, let's not mention this again. This theory seems to be prevailing. I mean, not that the colonists are gods, obviously, just to be extra clear, but if someone, if you've never seen a helicopter before and you're making spears out of someone's bones and a helicopter arrives, I mean, holy sh you must be like, what? They have made a bird. 
The theory seems to be the prevailing one in Rockefeller's story, and when I was researching this, I found there's a short story by Christopher Stokes called The Man Who Ate Michael Rockefeller, which was published in 2007. While this is a fictional and dramatized account, it still, maybe coincidentally, touches on the main point of the Asmac killing Rockefeller to restore an imbalance within their ancestors' spirits. This was also turned into a play a few years later. <laughs> of course it was. But you may have noticed that there's still a bit of script left. I have noticed that indeed. Getting rather hungry, haven't I? I was like, I'm going to record this before I have my breakfast. Looking forward to my breakfast. What other theories could there be regarding this disappearance? Well, instead of ending on the complete downer that this young man died so horribly, let's try and end on a more upbeat note. He joined the Asmats. In 1969, Milt Macklin, a journalist and editor, decided to investigate the story once again after rumors that Rockefeller was possibly still alive had reached his ears. Macklin was an editor for the Argosy magazine, amongst other things, which popped up in the Bermuda Triangle episode, and so you can see that he was interested in some more unusual stories of life. He also apparently coined the phrase, Abominable Snowman. So kudos to you, Milt Macklin. Anyway, he headed over to Papua and even talked to the same priest that Hoffman later did, our friend Cornelius Van Kessel. Macklin left with the impression that Rockefeller definitely did die by Asmat hands. He wasn't totally done with this idea, though, and while he couldn't travel into the Asmat region himself, probably a smart guy, he sent a National Geographic photographer, Malcolm Kirk, to take some footage for him. Why couldn't he travel in there, but the photographer can? Sounds like he's just a bit lazy. Kirk did take footage of Asmat life, including a large flotilla of Asmat warriors rowing down river on canoes. Macklin never did anything with the footage in the end, so it wasn't really examined until 2007, when Fraser has and son of Charlton decided to make a documentary based on Macklin's work called, unsurprisingly, The Search for Michael Rockefeller. He and his team tracked down Kirk's footage, and in the river scenes, standing up and paddling along with all the hundreds of Asmat warriors is a man who is undoubtedly non-Asmat. He's light-skinned, he has brownish hair and a discernible beard, which the Asmat typically do not sport. In the footage I saw, it even kind of looks a teensy bit like he might be possibly wearing glasses. Kirk has no recollection of seeing this man at the time he was filming, which is understandable as he was a distance away on the shore and may not have even been looking through the camera at the time. He also went back through his notes and saw reference to an albino man that he met on his trip, but this man is not an albino asthmat. He is distinctly Caucasian. If you're wondering why they can't just do facial recognition on the- oh, it's going to be like old and super grainy. If Katie can barely see if he's wearing glasses, no chance. It's because it's taken decades ago and from quite far away, so the image is pretty grainy. Yep. Zooming in just makes it worse, and the man is canoeing past at an angle, so there's never a full face shot. Well, until we get that CSI zoom and enhance technology, which I have to say, there's some AI stuff being done these days, whereas like, they AI enhance images, and it's like, oh my god, it is kind of like zoom and enhance, which we haven't made fun of for years, and now it's like, wow. The crew of the documentary apparently tried to get the image analyzed, but I'm told by experts that there's not enough detail to work with. As one of the producers of the documentary puts it when pretending to type into a computer, it's not CSI. It's not something you can boop de boop 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 Oh, it's Michael Rockefeller. I like that this is boop de boop 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 Okay. I feel suitably chastened my previous reference to CSI. <laughs> so anyway, could this be Michael Rock Rockefeller? And if not, who is it? How could it be him if everyone has agreed that he was killed and eaten? Well, maybe the asthma just flat out lied to protect him. Pure speculation here, of course, but Michael did not want to work in the family business. Yeah, but I'm also not sure he wants to live among the tribes of Papua New Guinea. Or where? Was it Papua? What? Is it? Look, whatever. I, there, were, there were so many places. I'm so confused. Wherever this tribe is from. He wanted to see the 
the world and was passionate about art. Maybe he saw an opportunity to live a different life, even just for a while, and he took it. The footage was taken about eight years after his disappearance, and the man could possibly be a 30-something Michael Rockefeller. Maybe he lived with the Asmat as some kind of totem, a curiosity, or maybe just a friend. The Dutch government shrugged off the priest's reports as unreliable. Wim van der Waal was shown some bones that were buried in the ground. They could have been there for ages. I'm generally convinced by whatever arguments I hear last, so let's hope that Michael swam away from the boat and into a different life. Nah, he's dead. He was dead. They killed him. That's uh, its not the last theory. I think it's that he's dead. His name lives on in today's New York Metropolitan Museum of Art, also known as the Met. Following the closure of Nelson Rockefeller's Museum of Primitive Art in 1976, the collection was moved to the much larger Met Galleries. In, a, in 1982, the Michael C. Rockefeller Wing was opened, housing what are now referred to as Arts of Africa, Oceania, and Ancient Americas. Currently undergoing renovations, the Michael C. Rockefeller Wing is due to re reopen in 2024 after what's been described on the Met's website as a complete conceptual and physical overhaul. Today, a quick look at the Met's website shows several towering bish poles in the Rockefeller wing, an impressive but stark reminder of the artwork and the people that may have cost Michael his life. So, really hope you enjoyed this episode of Decoding the Unknown. Thank you, Katie, for writing it. Brilliant, I'm sure, even though obviously you haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure it's always excellent. And thank you, dear listener, for listening or watching if you're on YouTube. Hello. Please leave a review of this podcast wherever you get your podcast. That would be grand. And if you're watching on YouTube, leave a comment. Let me know what's your theory. What do you think? And I'll see you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.